0: This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu.
1: Before we leave 2023 behind, we want to look back on the pictures and performances it gave us. We got blockbuster moments like Barbenheimer.
2: You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. And the world is not prepared.
3: Hi, Barbie! Hi, Ken! Hi, Barbie! Hi, Barbie!
1: Some well-known franchises returned without the same success. Ethan,
3: this mission of yours...
4: Is going to cost you
0: dearly. Indy! Give them hell, Indiana Jones!
1: But for you, it didn't matter how much a movie made at the theater. You liked what you liked.
0: Hey, I loved Barbie and I loved Oppenheimer,
5: but the movie that moved me the most was Godzilla Minus
0: One. My
4: name is Matt. I'm calling from Alexandria, and the greatest movie I saw in 2023 was The Outwaters, a low-budget horror movie that has had me shook ever since I saw it.
5: Best movie I've seen recently is Common Ground. Hi, my favorite movie for 2023 was Bernard Ruskin. He should win an Oscar. Absolutely wonderful. Wonderful. So what movies made a
1: splash and what movies are better left unwatched? We'll get into it after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. With thousands of options under $20,000, plus customizable financing terms and down payments as low as $0 down, it's easy to find a car that fits your lifestyle. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today. Terms and conditions may apply.
5: Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when... That couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Let's
1: bring in the 1A Movie Club. John Horn is back with us. He's 1A's entertainment correspondent. John, great to see you.
4: Always a pleasure to be with you.
1: Jacqueline Coley is with us. She's an editor at Rotten Tomatoes. Great to see you, Jacqueline. How y'all doing? And Brooke Obie. She's an award-winning critic and author. Brooke, welcome back. Hi, thanks to be here. And of course, we want to hear from you. What were your favorite movies from this year and why? Email us at 1a at wamu.org. Okay, so let's just start with a round robin of three. Let's say three of our favorite movies this year. Jacqueline, I'll start with you.
3: Uh, well, I'll start with uh, Oppenheimer. I absolutely adored Christopher Nolan's take on that one. It was probably one of the most cinematically precise films that I've ever seen. Um, absolutely incredible. You don't want all three from me right now. I could give them all three, but well, yeah, just give just just like give me your your top three for this year. My top three. Okay. Mm-hmm. Also, Past Lives by Cecile. So- like, I absolutely loved that film. I felt it was again just one of those films that you can't stop thinking about, and then Poor Things by Yorgos Lanthimos. That one I saw at the Venice Film Festival. I was blessed to see that the very first time, and I said to myself, I was like, I don't know if the world is ready, but I am ready. Okay, let's play a clip from Poor Things.
5: Understand, we never lived outside God's house. What? So Bella's so much to discover, and your sad face makes me discover angry feelings for you. Okay,
1: Poor Things stars Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. And I I will confess, I have seen the trailer for this movie... 20 times, and I don't know I don't know what is happening.
3: <laughs> Why did this movie make your favorite list? Because <laughs> you don't know what's happening until you see it. The one thing I will say is I can give you this. It's based off of a, uh, a novel that Yorgos has wanted to adapt for the better part of 15 years, and it tells the story of Bella Baxter, a young woman who is born into the world with no sense of shame and only a sense of discovery and self. And you follow her on this odyssey as she becomes a full person. And her creator, played by Willem Dafoe, is a mercurial one. It is set in some of the most arresting landscapes and visuals I've ever seen. And yes, you don't know what you're getting when you get there, but I swear it's one of the most satisfying endings in cinema. okay. That is high
1: praise.
2: Uh, Brooke, I want to come to you. Your top three favorites. Sure. So my number one movie of the year is Past Lives, um, Celine Song. This is a, her directorial debut. She wrote it and directed it, and I just think it's it's stunning. It's an incredible um, debut. It's shocking that it's a debut. Um, it's so beautifully done. Um, Greta Lee and Tao Yeo, just fantastic performances. Um, yeah, and it just moved me. And I've seen it probably six times now. Wow. Um, and I got, <laughs> I got to watch it with um, the director and the cast, um, and it was, you know, just one of my favorite things of the year. Um, Anatomy of the Fall is my second favorite movie um, out of France. It's just an incredible film. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, a courtroom drama. It's, you know, a whodunit. And you you don't quite really have all the answers, but, you know, you can debate endlessly, which I have done with my friends um, for days, like what really happened and what should have happened. And it's just a really, really fun um, and, you know, deeply, fun in that you could talk about it a lot, but just a deeply moving uh, film uh, about, um, you know, what <laughs> what is it going to take um, for, what is liberation, I guess, look like under mm-hmm. the lens of, you um, You know, and uh, a marriage that's kind of falling apart. That's the anatomy that we're looking at when we're talking about, you know, anatomy of a fall. And then my last one is 1001. It has not gotten... The praise, I think that it's due. Um, but this is another debut film. A.V. Rockwell, um, Tayana Taylor stars in this, and she's just fantastic. I've seen her in stuff before. She's been, you know, a supporting actress in in some smaller, you know, comic performances. Mm-hmm. But this is just a stunning uh, performance by her, and well, it's it's one of my favorites of the year. Well, John, I want to hear your favorites,
1: but first, let's hear a clip from A Thousand and One.
5: Save my beeper number just in case, till I find you. Okay. I don't know yet.
1: Why keep believing me? And, Brooke, before we move on, you get a sense of what this movie is about. It's essentially a family drama, right?
2: Oh, absolutely! So it's it's really it's about a young black mother um, and the lengths that she's willing to go to for her son, um, and you know it's it's the the impact of the prison industrial complex on this family. It's um, you know the impact of the foster care system. Um, you know, it, it, there's just so much here that's layered in in this uh, 1980s um, New York. Harlem based story um, that is still just so applicable today and just a really powerful, beautifully moving story. Okay, John, your
1: turn. Top three?
4: Well, you and I spent a weekend at the Middleburg Film Festival in Virginia, and we both saw a movie there that I think we're still thinking about that is American fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is my favorite movie of the year. Uh, I'm going to go another American movie, American Symphony, Matthew Heineman's documentary about John B- Batiste and his partner, Sulika. uh, an amazing story about two remarkable people at very different points in their lives. And then I'm going to throw in another, I don't know, it, I'm going to go The Mission, which is a documentary about the Christian evangelist, John Chow, who went to a island in which he was not welcomed in 2018. He was shot full of arrows. It's an amazing story about evangelicalism and about, about faith and about how we try to impose our beliefs on other people who have no interest in hearing our beliefs. And it's a very uh, well-made movie, sad story, but incredibly relevant for today. But American fiction, American symphony, and the mission.
1: Let's hear a clip from American fiction,
5: I'd be standing
4: outside in the night. Deadbeat dads, rappers, crack. You said you wanted black stuff. That's black, right? I see what you're doing.
1: Okay, so American Fiction has been nominated for two Golden Globe Awards for Best Musical or Comedy Motion Picture and Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy Film for Jeffrey Wright. And I spoke to Jeffrey Wright last week. He stars in American Fiction. You can hear that conversation on Wednesday. But, John, what was it about American Fiction that really resonated with you?
4: I mean, there are a couple of things. This is a first feature from Cord Jefferson, who is a remarkable filmmaker. And, you know, it's one of those things where a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Cord Jefferson was a journalist. He quit journalism because he was tired of writing about kind of black pain. That was what he was always assigned. He becomes a filmmaker, and what does he pitch? Stories about black pain. And then he finds this uh, great novel by Percival Everett called Erasure, adapts it, gets Jeffrey Wright uh, attached to star, thinks he's got the movie that everybody's going to love. 13 studios pass on it. One studio, Orion, which is headed by a black woman, makes it. It is a great performance by Jeffrey Wright. It is a great story about how we view art, what is and is not commercial. It's also a beautiful story about a family. There's not a false moment in it as far as I'm concerned. And it's a very funny movie, even though it's dealing with some very serious issues. And I'm not going to spoil it, but don't leave early because the (laughs) ending of this film says everything you need to know about Hollywood uh, and how it wants to please audiences, even if the ending... Is not at all consistent with a story that has preceded it. I just think it's a masterful film. I think it's one. I think it's truly accomplished from very first frames to the very last.
1: Coming up, we get to the blockbusters and break down the online buzz that was Barbenheimer. Back with more in a moment.
5: I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q and A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR, where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR. And I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most. On It's Been a Minute from NPR.
4: There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini-expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash considerthisnewsletter.
1: Now, we would be remiss not to look back on the moment that was Barbenheimer when the Barbie and Oppenheimer movies released on the same day in theaters, July 21st, 2023. And those movies were much beloved by so many of you.
3: Here's
2: what Elliot told us.
3: This is Elliot Trudeau from Gainesville,
2: Florida. Oppenheimer and Barbie were really a big breath of fresh air to really get people back to the cinema. And I think it's really cool Really, really cool that we're having people go back to the theaters and to get
3: that as well. I got myself a regal pass because I want to see more movies as well. Barbenheimer was really cool and it was a breath of fresh air.
1: Elliot, thanks for that message. We also got these texts. Barbie was so freaking funny. Margot Robbie deserves an Oscar. Barbie was my favorite. We needed a fun movie that took our focus away from all the negativity in our world. Brooke, why was this such a landmark moment for movie lovers this year?
2: I think what it showed is that people want an event you know people want a reason to go to the movies and they gave them that you know there was the the spectacle of you know the production design and, and painting everything pink and then all the marketing behind that um, it just really got people excited and then you know when Barbie and Oppenheimer were announced on the same day um it was like okay now this is a big competition and maybe it doesn't have to be like let's see which one of these like let's go to both you know let's dress for half and half there were so many fun costumes and you know, it really got people um, into the idea of sharing movies in community, which is the whole point of movie theaters and the reason why we go. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think it, it really gave people what they were looking for, a reason to get out of the house. Because if you can stream a movie instead, you're going to stream it.
1: Well, what's interesting is Barbenheimer as an event created a lot of buzz and excitement for the theater, but there was a chance it wouldn't happen. In Variety's Actors on Actors interview with Killian Murphy, Marco Robbie shared that one of Oppenheimer's producers suggested the Barbie team move their release date according to her she said quote we're not moving our date if you're scared to be up against us then you move your date <laughs> quote i mean john what lessons can the film industry take away from this because these are very different movies but they they became an event despite <laughs> despite the the producers behind these films
4: let directors tell the stories they want to tell i think that's, that's the it. lesson and I'm going to say say this and I'm not going to get through it. It is literally impossible to be a woman. You are so beautiful and so smart and it kills me that you don't think you're good enough. Like we have to always be extraordinary but somehow we're always doing it wrong. And it turns out, in fact, that not only are you doing everything wrong, but also everything's your fault. Mm-hmm. I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other woman tie herself in a knot so that people will like us. And if all of that is also true for a doll just representing women, then I don't even know.
1: America for Rare America is?
4: for Rare speech and Barbie. Mm-hmm. I get choked up saying it. I was with my wife in the movie theater, she was sobbing. I looked around, every woman in the theater was sobbing. How rare is it to let a filmmaker, Greta Gerwig, Gerwig, and a writing partner and partner in life, Noah Baumbach, write that dialogue and have an actor say it? That I think is the lesson of that movie. Um, it's also on Monday Movie Club. We talked about it, and I and I think it's a it's a fantasy, but it's a real story. It is so grounded in the real world, um, and I think we think about Oppenheimer. We talk a lot about Oppenheimer. Louis Strauss, played by Robert Downey Jr., I think is the soul of the movie and the contemporary politician that we have now that rather than disagree with somebody, you destroy them. Um, and that's, you know, that unfortunately is the way we are now. Oppenheimer is a lot about kind of confrontation and about uh, not being able to reconcile yourself with other people. Barbie is the opposite. Mm-hmm. And I just love that those movies can exist at the same time. And they're both very well made. But there's something special about Barbie that I think, and, and America for Her Speech, any movie that has that speech in it is extraordinary.
3: I, yeah. I Can thought... I just add something sure, sure, quick sure, go to ahead. that? I know that they said about the dates, but I will say Universal Pictures has already learned the lesson that Barbenheimer gave us. Because if you look at the end of 2024, they have put two of their own films premiering on the same weekend with two our tour directors. I do not want to get past the idea that the producers of both those movies were wrong to think that this was going to be a bad thing for either movie. I think now we realize that if you can make an event and if you can make an event around tourism, or directors getting to say what they want to say or directors who audiences are drawn to or stories that audiences are drawn to, then you can put them all on the same day and people will make a day of going to the movies. The idea of counter-programming, I think, has been lost um, in certain ways. But I do think now, when you have movie fans, there are people that are fans of both. And that is where I think we've kind of lost that in the segmented marketing of modern-day cinema.
1: Now, I I just have to mention, when I saw (laughs) the, the Barbie movie, it was in a... There was an, an elder woman that <laughs> during America's speech, she was like, "Yes, uh huh, yes," and I was like, "Okay, I love it." We kind of went to church in the theater. Now I understand it. I want to overlook this, Brooke. You're you're not a huge fan of of Barbie and Oppenheimer,
2: um. So. No, I'm not, but you know, I appreciate the joy that it gives other people. I don't (laughs) want to rain on anybody's parade, but I mean, honestly, um, I felt like it was diversity without actually being diverse in characters. Um, you know, Barbie chooses to self actualize in the real world, but give President Barbie the opportunity, give Issa Rae's character an opportunity to see if she can go to the real world and be like, yeah, I'd rather be here than in Barbie land. Take the wheelchair Barbie who doesn't even have any lines in the movie and and send her to the real world and see if she would rather be in the real world than to be in Barbie land. But I also just feel like the idea of this being a feminist film, um, I just don't think that we are having an understanding of what feminism is. It's really not women getting to be in charge of things, like, a woman president is not inherently feminist, you know, we still have these systems of patriarchy, you know, these are just, you know, figureheads, winning a Nobel Prize, like, all of these things that they kind of, having them all on the Supreme Court, and and no men, like, you know, that's not feminism, women oppressing men is not feminism, it's it's just women doing the same things that men have been doing, and I really feel like if you're gonna have Barbie and Ken go to the real world and be fundamentally changed by the experience, Why can't the the 12 male executives that come into Barbie land from the real world, why aren't they fundamentally changed? Why are they the exact same way they've always been? You know, there's no feminist awakening for them to be there. And I think that gets to the heart of what the problem is of the movie for me. Like it's, if you can make all these jabs at Mattel and get away with it, quote unquote, it's because you're not actually doing anything that's going to challenge them or harm them or, you know, make anything different. You're upholding the status quo. Nothing about the leadership of Mattel in the real world is going to change. And so, you know, why not make a few jabs here and there? It is a status quo movie. It upholds the status quo. And that's pretty much my opinion on that. For Oppenheimer, (laughs) I think Kitty in Oppenheimer says exactly what my problem is with that movie. She says to Oppenheimer, You cannot sin and then make us all feel bad for you. Like, that's what the movie is, though. Oppenheimer did a huge, horrible thing with his ego and thinking that he could control this terrible, terrible thing. Now he's given it to the world. He's got no control of it. And we're supposed to feel bad for him? Like, I really do believe Christopher Nolan wants us to feel bad for this guy or sympathize with this guy. Like, oh, look at what he lost. Like... No, he doesn't even talk about the New Mexico indigenous people who were destroyed and who are still fighting this battle to this day. You know, it doesn't talk about the Japanese people and what they went through. Like, it's all about how we should feel bad for Oppenheimer. And I just don't. It's a beautiful movie in in terms of how what it looks. And that's all I have for Oppenheimer. John emails, as an educator
1: who spent 40 plus years in the classroom, I found The Holdovers poignant, bittersweet, and profoundly kind and humane. A subtle story and perfect performances. Jennifer loved The Holdovers too. Why oh why is no one talking about Paul Giamatti in The Holdovers? He is a true thespian. The movie was outstanding. John, we have talked about The Holdovers, and this was this was a movie you really loved.
4: If there were a question about our favorite performances, Paul Giamatti is number one, two, and three. I love this movie, and I think Alexander Payne, the director, um, he's working with another screenwriter. He didn't write it himself, and there is a sense of, of warmth and joy and understanding and reconciliation in this movie that I found incredibly moving. As the parent of a recent teenager and a current teenager, I thought he did a great job capturing what it feels like to be a young boy. Um, I thought Divine Joy Randolph was fantastic in this film. I thought the newcomer who'd never acted in front of a camera before in a lead role, Dominic Sessa, was really good. Um, I just thought it was a very warm and loving movie. And Paul Giamatti plays a character who we're not really fond of, but we understand him. And I think he shows, Alexander Payne shows why somebody becomes the person they are and how they think they can't change and they end up changing. And it's like what you were talking about earlier about Oppenheimer. I think the characters in The Holdovers do learn to change.
1: We're going to head to a quick break. Stay with us. We've got a lot more still ahead.
5: From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change, the many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present, and how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the shortwave podcast from NPR.
1: Let's get back to the conversation with a message we got from one of you. Dottie emailed, My favorite movie was Asteroid City. It was weird, funny, and visually so fascinating. My mom and I left the theater and both said, I have no idea what it was about, but I want to see it again. And Rhonda emailed, I love the movie Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse and promoted it to my friends with an evangelical fervor. The animation is spectacular. You can just sit back and let the beautiful, ever-changing imagery wash over you. There's so much else to engage with, too. Characters, plot, dialogue, and humor. One of my favorite movies ever. While there were plenty of successes at the box office, there were also some notable flops. Um, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny and the latest in the Mission Impossible franchise were some of the most expensive movies to make, but their ticket sales fell short in theaters this summer. And the Marvels became the lowest grossing MCU movie in history. John, when we look at the Marvels, for example, this is the first time they've tried to bridge the streaming theatrical worlds in, in the Marvel universe. And it was also coming at a time when actors were still striking, so they couldn't promote the film. It, it sort of seems like it was, it was the worst case scenario for that movie. But what are studios learning about what people will actually go out to see?
4: I mean, I think it's also a very important lesson for what has gone wrong at the Walt Disney Company. I mean, from Indiana Jones, uh, from Lucasfilm, Star Wars, um, from the Marvels movies, even some uh, Pixar films. I think what happened to Disney is during the pandemic, they put everything on Disney Plus so quickly that audiences basically were educated not to watch movies in theaters. Mm. And so Disney, to try to make ends meet during the pandemic, said, don't worry, we'll get it on streaming. And so they conditioned their audience more than I think any other studio not to go to theaters. So these movies do have a you know good afterlife or secondary life on streaming, but they're not doing w- well theatrically. And theatrical is a good business to be in. So I think the that lesson is kind of specific to Disney. Disney, Bob Iger, their chairman has also said they made too many... Basically, he said they made too many bad movies. Not only were there bat, bad movies, there were a, a surfeit of them. So they had the worst of like too many of in of kind of just inferior films. So I think the lesson for other studios is... Trust theatrical if the movie's gonna play, although it's very top-heavy now. The big hits make more, a bigger percentage of all tickets sold than they ever have before. But also don't just make prequels and sequels and knockoffs and spin-offs unless you have an original take on them. So the Spider-Verse people said, how not how do we do this again? How do we not do it again? And I think that's why Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is such a great movie. They started from a completely blank place and said, we're not going to do anything that worked in the first film. And if you look at that movie in terms of its imagery, in terms of the production design, the worlds, the music, it's just so original, even though it is a second film. So you can do a second film like Spider-Verse. It doesn't mean it's a clone of what's come before. And I think that's what Disney has done great to its great peril.
3: So
1: Jacqueline... Audiences want originality. What what else do they want?
3: I think audiences want originality. I think they also want to know that this is going to be a moment and an event. And again, full disclosure, uh, Universal is our parent company, but I know about as much is going on with them as what's going on with Barb Iger. The one thing I will say is they were the most profitable studio last year, in part because they leaned into a lit- original features, and even when they did repeats of IP like Super Mario Brothers, they really tried to have a fresh take on what you could do within that genre. In addition to that, they had movies last year like... Uh, We wanted to say uh, Black Phone. They had movies like uh, Cocaine Bear that were smaller films on a smaller budget through their, their horror studio Blumhouse. And so even though they're a part of what you would call this grander IP, they still managed to make individualized, authentic stories. Five Nights at Freddy's was a huge hit for them because they didn't try to appeal to the four quadrants that Disney has sort of made their entire business off of. And they had a huge huge hit. And so I think the bigger lesson is it's going to be first of all, because of budget, smaller films are going to get made. They're going to have to go back to old school development, which has sort of been offshoot to producers in the past few years. Studios are really going to have to be tastemakers again if they're going to be able to lead this industry. And I think um, Universal has already said they were the first ones to do that 45-day window. They found a balance. They didn't throw everything on Peacock. They managed to say, hey, this is still a good business for us. Let's make a new ecosystem that can work with our theatrical, but not tear away from our theatrical. Mm-hmm. And I think yet again, even like they did with the 45-day theatrical window, they're probably going to lead the way for the new sort of streaming theatrical mantra because places like Disney, places like also Warner Brothers learned a very tragic lesson with their sort of keep popping these movies out um, and, and hope that the audience stays with you. As much as I love Bob Arger, I think he is a architect of his own destruction in a sense, because I remember that Disney day in front of those shareholders where they put all those movies up there and I was like, how are you going to make this? And then they did.
1: Hmm. Hey, Brick, I'm curious to hear from you whether you think streaming and the availability of so many different types of movies on streaming has changed consumer tastes. Like there's certain certain types of films I want to see in a theater. So when Dune comes out next year, I want to see that in a theater. But there are other movies that I'm very content to watch at home. How do you think the availability of streaming is changing what we're willing to go to the
2: theater to see? Oh, absolutely. Um so people want to have some reason to go out of the house. Like I said, if it's easier to watch something online, if it's easier to stream something at home, you're going to save money first of all. Um, I mean, going to the movies is a huge expense, especially if there's more than one of you, you know, mm-hmm. with popcorn and candy and drinks and everything. Uh, there's going to have to be something spectacular to see. I think that, you know, Christopher Nolan did a really great job. You know, um, Jordan Peele as well um, last year with Nope. You know, this is all shot in IMAX. You have to see this on an IMAX screen. And that was something that got people out, and people did want to go see it. And I-, I wanted to see it. I went to uh, the TCL Chinese Theater here in Hollywood and, and went to see it in IMAX. Max to to understand, you know, what, what he wanted to put on the screen. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I also went to see Theater Camp, though, in the movie theater. And I feel like people want to put, you know, comedies and romantic comedies, especially on streaming and just let people, like, burn through these. But these are, experiences that people want to have. They want to have on a great date night or a great night out with friends, you know? And so I I do think that there are people who will go to the movies to see anything and it's really about how do you market to the people that want to get out of the house and go, um, if they can throw it on, you know, a streaming channel, they'll they'll probably do that. But then we forget it so much, and you know, we we burn through, you know, so many movies in a week um, that could have had really lasting impact in a movie theater. You know, so much of Netflix original movies would have been amazing on the big screen. Um, but, you know, we watch them and then we move on to the next and we watch it and we move on to the next. And so I really do think if they can create a story around why people need to go to the movies to see this and and respect that, um, that people will actually go.
1: We have to, of course, talk about one of the major things that shaped this year in movies, and that's the strikes. The, writer, uh, the actors, uh, Screen Actors Guild strike and the Writers Guild of America strike that went on for several months. Just really quickly, I want to hear from each of you how you think those strikes and the resulting deals have reshaped Hollywood.
4: John? The Writers Guild went out May 2nd. The SAG strike ended November 9th. That's six months where people were not working. And the people who are hardest hit were actually IATSE members. That's the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. Accountants, script supervisors, props, hair, makeup, cinematographers. Their contract comes up next July. We'll see what happens there. It was horrible. And it was horrible for a lot of people. A lot of people in those below-the-line jobs have quit the business and are never going to come back. I think it really showed a shift in priorities. This was never about money because the contract cost a fraction of what these companies lost. So it was all about power and it was about power and the and the diminish diminution dilution, let's say the dilution of creative voices. And it really said the corporation, the shareholders, the stock price is more important than the people who create the content upon which our companies were built. And I think that's incredibly sad. The Writers Guild got a good contract, SAG maybe not quite so much, but I think it really represented a seismic shift in how the people who run the studios see their collaborators and they see them in a very poor light. And that does not bode well for the future.
3: Jacqueline, your thoughts? I think that is right. And I think there's going to be a lot of hangovers. I can't really say right now, just a few months after, what has shifted. The people who were working before are back to work. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people who thought they'd be back to work are going to wait a lot longer until they actually are able to rejoin the industry, if they're ever able to. I do agree with John. We have probably seen a huge contraction of our industry as many people have just left with no intention of returning. I think what is going to be more interesting is I believe that this hot labor summer is going. To- to enact a artist equity uh, 2024. There's already been films and production companies like Ben Affleck's and Matt Damon who have put this idea of if you work on the movie, you can share in the profits into the DNA of how they produce. And I think that is going to be a seismic shift in Hollywood. We also saw people like Beyonce and Taylor Swift, two very unique movies, but they went past the studios to release those directly to theaters. And showing that that model could be successful given the right IP and the right artist is really going to i think shake up hollywood also there was a lot of i would say bad headlines during uh, the writers strike that are going to still make people affect who they choose to work with there was things like movies disappearing from streaming service streaming service sold us this idea that you could have your library on an app and we've now quickly determined that's probably not going to be the case and so i think a lot of creatives are saying Do I want to partner with this company if I don't know if my movie will exist Mm. in 10 years, if I will even be able to find it? And then you have moments, again, like Oppenheimer, where they sell out the physical media. I think this is going to see a little bit of a backlash towards streaming because although it hasn't been called it, I do think um, as we look at this in hindsight, this will be seen as the streaming strike because of who it affected most and whose business models are forever changed because of it.
2: Brooke, anything to add? Oh yeah, I absolutely agree with that. But also, you know, we had the Marvel workers who unionized as well as a result of you know seeing all these other successful unions come together and fight for what they wanted. And so, you know, I think that this is going to resonate outside of Hollywood as well. You had so many people all over the world that were striking um, in the wake of this, and so you know, I, I think that it is uh, waking everybody up to um, what your rights are as a as a worker and and how you should be treated. Um, and and yeah, I absolutely believe that you know streaming is is gonna face a little bit of backlash. And you know you have um, people like Christopher Nolan who are he's never working with Warner Brothers again because of you know what they did to put his movies on streaming instead of in the theater. And so you've got you know auteurs that have that level of power who are going to make those decisions and and decide who they're going to be working with and also demanding you know physical releases of their movies as well um, as a result of streaming, um, taking stuff out of the library at their will. Um, So, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's hopefully empowering people who have way less power than Christopher Nolan, um, but definitely those, those A-listers who, who can wield that power um, and create movies like Zendaya did as well in her movie and allowing people to um, take ownership of that movie um, that she did with John David Washington um, at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so hopefully we'll see a lot more movies like that and a lot more productions where people actually have ownership in the work that they are putting out.
1: All right. We're going to have to leave it there. We've been talking to Brooke Obey, an award-winning critic and author, Jacqueline Coley, Rotten Tomatoes editor, and 1A Entertainment correspondent, John Horn. Today's producer was Horhalina Manarea. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.
5: It's Been a Minute is a culture show you don't want to miss. Every week, we help you see the culture angle behind the headlines, the forces behind the trends, and the thinkers behind the next big thing. Tune in for the sharp cultural analysis and captivating interviews. Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. For the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person
2: is part of every story. We're bringing that perspective with new episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR.
3: Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to Earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas. We've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR.